The locations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Saanich, Songhees, Macaw, Nuchanul, and Kwakwakulak peoples. I also want to acknowledge the recent death of Bill Holm, the art historian who played a huge role in allowing the world to appreciate Northwest Coast Native art as the complex, evolving, and very much alive style that it is. For millennia, the plank houses of the Coast Salish culture rose along the shores of Vancouver Island in British Columbia's southwest corner. The buildings of today's provincial capital of Victoria may seem a world apart from those built by the Saanich and Songhees, but one structure recalls their design in its own modernist way. The Royal BC Museum shares a lot of traits with indigenous architecture. It's built right on a body of water, in this case Victoria's inner harbor, it's largely windowless, and it's in the form of a rectangle with an entrance on the short end. Most importantly, it's adorned by one of the world's largest collections of Northwest Coast native art. The convoluted galleries on the museum's upper floor are a testament to the beauty and power of BC First Nations culture. Totem poles, canoes, masks, and other works of art are brilliantly illuminated and make for a stunning display. This can make it easy to overlook the fact that the nucleus of this collection, as with so many others, was items plundered from native communities. Such looting has been depressingly common along the coast from Oregon to Alaska, with individuals, museums, and even cities pilfering what they saw as curios and relics of a dead or dying culture. Fortunately, in the mid-20th century, things began to change. A generation of artists and scholars showed the world that Northwest Coast art is anything but what would then have been called primitive. Instead, it is united by ancient and complex traditions that continue to evolve as living cultures and artists interpret them in unique ways. Bill Reed, whose monumental The Raven and the First Men kicked this series off, was one important figure in this renaissance. Bill Holm, the recently deceased University of Washington anthropologist and art historian, was another. A third pivotal figure was Kwakwakiwak chief Mungo Martin, who carried out much of his most important work at the Royal BC Museum. Martin was an accomplished sculptor and artist before he moved to Victoria in the 1950s, but his work there propelled him and his people's cultural traditions onto a much bigger stage. Much of his work still stands in the museum in adjacent Thunderbird Park, including several totem poles in the traditional big house. In these works, and in those of countless generations before Martin's time and many since, you can see the essential elements of Northwest Coast art as outlined by Bill Holm. Formlines, ovoids, eyelids, and U-forms. These lines and shapes are usually painted black, or occasionally red, with blue, green, or a mixture of these two colors providing highlights. On parts of works that have not been painted, or on older pieces on which the colors might have faded, you can also see another unifying thread in the material from which most are made. Indigenous carvers and painters were and are adept in many media, but none more so than the wood of one of the region's most widespread and abundant conifers, Western Red Cedar. It's not hard to find cedars in Northwest forests. Just locate a particularly damp spot of ground, and you should have no trouble spotting their distinctive scaly needles, small cones, and reddish, stringy bark. As mentioned in the previous episode, you can find them as far inland as the Rockies, 
But if you want to see this water-loving species at its height, head to the Central Pacific coastal forests of the Oregon Coast Ranges, Washington's Olympic Peninsula, and Vancouver Island. Here, weather systems fresh from the ocean encounter seaside mountains, and the result is one of the rainiest landscapes on Earth. On the Olympic Peninsula and Vancouver Island in particular, such ideal conditions have led to the growth of truly gargantuan cedars. Olympic National Park preserves several patches of ancient rainforests, with especially impressive and surprisingly accessible stands of giant conifers at Lake Quinault and along the Queets and Ho rivers. These are among the densest and luscious forests in the world, home to many species other than cedars, but no other conifer has had anywhere near the same cultural impact. One of the traits that makes cedars so important to artists and craftspeople is easily observable on any tree. Its bark distinguishes it from the Douglas fir, Sitka spruce, and western hemlock that live alongside it. Rather than being thick and armor-like, it's thin and can be peeled off of trees in thin sheets. When done properly and infrequently, this process doesn't damage the tree, meaning that an individual cedar tree can provide fibrous bark to generations of weavers. One of the best places to see what these weavers have produced, and to get a sense of the other, less easily visible advantages of cedar, is also located on the Olympic Peninsula, at the farthest northwest point you can travel in the continental U.S. The Macaw Nation, centered on the town of Nia Bay, can be reached by a single twisting road that is always stunning, sometimes treacherous, and frequently closed by landslides. These landslides can be a headache to anyone trying to get to and from Nia Bay in the winter, but they're a fact of life when you live on a hilly landscape at the edge of a continent in one of the wettest places on Earth. Most of the landslides along the highway are cleared relatively quickly, but an older event along the outer coast has left a very long-lasting legacy. 500 years ago, a hillside above the Macaw village of Ozette gave way, smothering the community in a thick layer of mud and debris. This was, of course, a disaster for the people of that community, but the mud that entombed Ozette also preserved it. Much of the art created in the pre-colonial Northwest was carved from wood or weaved out of bark. Both substances, especially when wet, can be buffets for the fungi, lichens, termites, and other decomposers that thrive in Pacific forests, meaning that much of the work created before about the 19th century has long since returned to the forests from which it was fashioned. At Ozette, though, the thick, oxygen-poor sediments that buried the village protected its houses, its everyday items, and its works of art from decay. You can hike to the now-reburied site in Olympic National Park's coastal strip, but to really appreciate the artistic skill of Ozette's people, head to Nia Bay. In a clear illustration of how much things had changed since the turn of the 20th century, archaeologists from Washington State University collaborated with the tribe, and everything uncovered from the Ozette site remained at the Macaw Cultural and Research Center, with much of it on display in the center's museum. Cedar bark figures prominently, woven into clothing, including distinctive peaked hats, fishing nets, bags, baskets, and even the fastenings of whaling harpoons. It's also one of the best places you can go to appreciate the value and versatility of cedar wood. Western red cedar has three major advantages as a material. First, it's widespread and common, especially on the rainy outer coast. Second, it's full of acidic chemicals known as polyoxyphenols that make it resistant to decay and insect damage and also give cedar its wonderful aroma. These first two traits make it an excellent building material, 
and it should come as no surprise that the houses of Ozette were built mainly from cedar planks and posts, sometimes decorated with carvings, inlaid with shells or animal teeth, or painted in red and black. The third relevant trait of cedar, though, is what makes it especially important to Northwest Coast art. It's a softer wood, making it easy to carve, and especially when steamed, can be bent or even folded at sharp angles. While this makes it a less than perfect material for items like bows, clubs, or harpoons, many examples of which have been found at Ozette that are carved from the much harder wood of yew, another conifer, it makes an ideal medium for carved art. The most iconic examples are the effigy of a whale fin inlaid with sea otter teeth, and a chest carved with the face of a thunderbird. But even everyday items such as mat creasers and combs showcase the macaw genius for cedar carving. From a technical standpoint, the most impressive items might be bent wood boxes, formed by steaming cedar and folding it into an open-topped cube. Such boxes are characteristic of Northwest Coast art, and would be impossible to build without cedar's remarkable pliability. Bentwood boxes are important storage containers and art objects along the entire coast, but another item that takes advantage of cedar's ability to bend and stretch characterizes Northwest Coast culture like no other. As you probably gathered from Nia Bay's peninsular location and the huge number of objects uncovered from Ozette related to fish, whales, and otters, the Macaw are a maritime nation. This is true of all the people of the Pacific coastal forests, who are often, and correctly, considered alongside such seagoing people as the Vikings and the Polynesians in terms of shipbuilding mastery. The ships in question on the northwest coast are canoes, which serve a huge range of functions between Oregon and Alaska, from fishing and whaling, to trade and transport, to war and ceremony. Regardless of how they were used, the material of choice for traditional canoes is cedar. Societies around the world have developed dugout canoes, in which a log is hollowed out to make a boat. I'm particularly proud of the giant dugouts carved by my Irish forebears, but the ingenuity and skill of indigenous boat builders and the properties of cedar itself make Northwest canoes the true masterpieces of this style. Just as steamed planks can be folded to make a bentwood box, a hollowed out canoe can be filled with water and hot rocks to steam the cedar and stretch the boat out. One effect of this stretching are the large prows, which can be decorated with relatively simple designs or, especially further north, elaborate carvings and decoration. The other major effect is a hull with a shallow draft and a streamlined, hydrodynamic shape that is ideal for traversing the labyrinth of waterways that is the northwest coast. Nowhere is seaworthiness more important than for the Macaw and their close relatives, the Nuchanulth, of western Vancouver Island. These cultures grew up with the bountiful but often treacherous open ocean on one side and sheer mountains on the other, making waterways, lifelines, and seamanship a crucial, constantly honed skill. This maritime legacy has clearly left its mark on the communities of Vancouver Island and the Olympic Peninsula. You'll see it in the construction of towns like Nia Bay, built in the traditional way facing the coast. You'll see it in art, with scenes of whaling being one of the distinguishing characteristics of Macaw and Nuchanulth design. These groups were the only ones in the region to practice whaling, a legal right reclaimed by the Macaw in recent decades. The clearest physical expression of this legacy, though, are canoes themselves, which you'll see in museums, in cultural centers, and, of course, on the water. 
1989, the Paddle of Seattle kicked off the tradition of annual canoe journeys incorporating tribes and boats from throughout the Northwest. Coming as it did in the midst of a reassertion of tribal sovereignty and treaty rights, these journeys were not only a celebration of indigenous culture, but a revival, and for many people in the area, a reminder of that culture. Nia Bay and the villages of the Nuchanulth are often stops on this voyage, and if you're in the area in the summer, go out of your way to be present for one of these arrivals. Though if you do so, remember that these are hugely important cultural events, not tourist attractions, and should be treated with the appropriate respect. If you want to experience Northwest Coast canoes firsthand, though, follow another road to its end. This one is on Vancouver Island, and will lead you past impressive stands of old-growth Central Pacific Coastal Forest in McMillan Provincial Park and Pacific Rim National Park to the town of Tofino on Clayoquot Sound. Tofino is one of the world's great ecotourism destinations, popular for storm watchers, kayakers, and long-distance hikers alike. It's also deep in the heart of Nuchanulth territory, and there's no better way to see Clayoquot Sound than in a traditional canoe. You can do this through Tashi Paddle School, a First Nations-owned and operated business that introduces visitors to the Sound's natural and cultural landscape aboard canoes built by master carver Joe Martin. It was one of these journeys that inspired this podcast in the first place, and to my mind is exactly the kind of experience that travel should be all about. Taking the time to learn the stories that a landscape, or in this case a seascape, and the cultures it has shaped have to tell. One of the places you can visit on a Tashi paddle tour is Mears Island, home to some gigantic cedars in sight of bitter anti-logging protests in the early 1990s. Protesters would eventually arrive from across the globe, but this movement was spearheaded by local First Nations. At about the same time, the Macaw were exercising their treaty rights to resume whale hunting, and yearly canoe journeys were gaining momentum. Another expression of indigenous sovereignty and cultural revival ramping up at this time was the repatriation of artifacts collected, or more accurately plundered, over the previous centuries. The Kwakwakiwak of northern Vancouver Island have been especially active in this regard. Kwakwakiwak art is probably what sprung to your mind every time I've mentioned Northwest Coast carving. It's especially famous for its diversity of masks, which may represent giant birds with clacking jaws, the puckered face of the giant Sonoqua, and a number of other figures from the natural and mythological world of Vancouver Island. All are painted in bold colors, many are enormous, and some open and close, allowing a dancer to transform from human into another animal. Repatriated masks are the core of two cultural centers on Kwakwakiwak land, the Nyumbalese Cultural Center on Quadra Island and the Umista Cultural Center in Alert Bay. Like so many destinations in this episode, both are at the end of the road, and then some, as it takes a short ferry ride to complete each trip. The road that ends at the Alert Bay Ferry is especially lengthy, wending its way through the forest at the north end of Vancouver Island before re-emerging near the coast, but the trip is well worth taking. The masks and other treasures stored at the Umista Cultural Center would be reason enough to make the journey, but these are not the works of carved cedar that bring most people to Alert Bay. The immense size of some trees meant that indigenous carvers have long had access to the raw materials for the monumental works of art that have become synonymous with Northwest Coast culture. The Kwakwakiwak and Nuchanulth are the southernmost cultures that have traditionally carved totem poles, and Alert Bay is one of the best places to experience them firsthand. 
and I use the word experience intentionally. Totem poles can serve a number of purposes, to form a grand entryway to a house, to celebrate a family's history, to commemorate the dead, to welcome visitors, or, my favorite, to shame someone who has wronged you. But regardless of their function, they are first and foremost built to impress. The boxes, masks, and other objects discussed in this episode are all impressive for the quality of their carving, but totem poles add the additional factor of size. This has been taken to extremes by one pole in Alert Bay, carved by a quartet of local carvers and billed as the world's tallest totem pole. Far more significant from an artistic and historical perspective are the poles in the Namgi's burial grounds. Old photographs of Alert Bay show that its waterfront was once a forest of totem poles, a forest that still flourishes in the burial grounds today. The poles here span decades, with new ones still being added periodically. Among them are a memorial to Mungo Martin, who carved his first totem pole in Alert Bay, as well as works by Willie Seaweed and Arthur Shaughnessy, also important Kwakwakiwak carvers of the mid-20th century, and the Hunt family, descendants of Mungo Martin and extremely skilled, prolific, and influential artists in their own right. In fact, all around Alert Bay you'll see totem poles, many of them recent and all of them displaying the characteristic style of their carvers. Both the U.S. and Canada have a long way to go to fully grapple with their colonial past and the many injustices suffered by indigenous peoples, but the continued flourishing and evolution of one of the world's great sculptural traditions, despite concerted efforts on both sides of the border to erase that tradition, is a major success story. But what about the cedar and other conifers that are the basis of Northwest Coast art? The forests in which they live are exposed to logging, invading species, forest fires, fragmentation, and climate change, making it hard to predict what the future holds for them. Hard, but not completely impossible. Next week, we'll travel to the most diverse of all Northwest forests to delve into what makes them so rich in life and the ecological tools that allow us to identify and plan for the challenges this diversity will face in coming decades. Mm -hmm.